for human resources professionals who walk the fine line between providing strategic support and grabbing a baseball bat, welcome to HR Hardball, hosted by John Reeves Whitaker. This is your leadership moment, folks. Don't screw it up. All right. How you doing this afternoon? Good. You sound a little echoey, but that's okay. I do? Okay. We'll fix that. Well, we were revisiting some of our episodes from last last year. We had so many great guests. I think we had some fantastic episodes. And unsurprisingly, we found some gold in some of those episodes and thought it would be a fun idea to take out some of the uh, best outtakes, compile it into one master episode, and be like those people and do best ofs. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Okay, well. A lot um, of fun reviewing them. It was, it was fun. We could actually have filled it with uh, a lot more, but we tried for time's sake to, to condense it. But we are going to touch on every episode from last year. And I don't know if you, this is going to be kind of funny because we're doing a recap of a recap. But our first episode last year for season three was called OSHA Has an Oh Shit Moment. And if you remember, this is, I mean, it was only a year ago that this goofball administration was trying to make. Uh, Vaccines mandatory by using a governmental agency that does workplace safety. They were going to try to make vaccines mandated, if you remember. So let's uh, let's listen to a few moments from that. This mandate, to me, there was a few things. I'm going to run these by and get your input on this, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a few things that just never sat right with me. Number one is when you find out that Congress doesn't have the same obligation themselves. So there's no <laughs> mandate for Congress. This is a joke. I mean, that, that is kind of funny. I mean, it's like, yes, you were going to do this. You're going to lose it's your job. It's good for you, but not for me. Right, right. For thee and not me. Okay, that one bugs me. And then another one, and I think this is near and dear to us because we are in Texas. This is a always a, a volatile topic here. But we have a, a real border crisis. If you don't believe me, um, come down to visit Texas, the south of Texas border, and you will not believe it. But there are thousands of people entering this country every day illegally and while they're waiting to be processed or while they're waiting to claim asylum or while they're waiting to you know or even if they're just sneaking in there's no vaccine requirement for them so that doesn't sit can we unpack that for just a second yeah yeah what how did we who opened the border for this to happen (laughs) who opened the border well borders are you know that if you ask what the job is of the federal government the federal government is supposed to protect your sovereignty as a nation. And so when people are crossing the border, like try to cross the border into Canada for crying out loud. I mean, that, that those people are tight, but in and out of Mexico has always been like this as far as, as long as I can remember anyway, but it's worse now than it's ever been. Okay. But why, what happened? Oh, we're going to get, do you really want to get real? No, I just, no, I just want to know. Well, there was this uh, real focus on it before. From the previous administration. Because he was building a wall. Yeah, well, and he was doing a lot of different to keep things. Him out. He wasn't going to offer asylum. He wasn't, I mean, he was going to have ICE go around and let's, I mean, thousands and thousands of people are, are entering illegally and they're never asked to, uh, they have a court date to come back. I mean, we can go down that rabbit hole. I don't want to go but down the rabbit don't. hole, but is, has this been happening or is there, did something change where more people are coming? Well, what changed is the, the administration changed and they are all about open border. Because open border gives illegal citizens the chance to enter the country, but it also allows them to vote. That's what's next. That's what's happening in New York. They're going to allow, I think there's like, I don't know, 800,000 illegals that will be allowed to vote in New York. 
city elections. Hmm. Anyway, so that, that never sat right with me. Citizens, you're threatening their livelihood. Illegals don't have to do it. So now Congress and illegal uh, immigrants aren't required. But the third thing that never sat well with me is it did not take into consideration natural immunity. Okay, that was pretty hot takes there. I mean, it, I want to clarify one thing real quick because I know there's a couple of hot words in there. We keep saying illegals, illegals, and I know a lot of people are saying humans can't be illegals. All right, it's like get off your soapbox, Nancy. What we're talking about is people who are not citizens. They're um, unauthorized entrants into our country. So I don't, I don't want to, you know, take any heat for using the word illegal because they are illegally in our country. Um, what do you think about that? Listening back. It just makes me mad all over again. I know. And you're already like breathing heavy. It's like, oh, <laughs> God, it was so long. Let's go on to the next one. Okay. All right. Let's listen. There was a little bit more. Oh, no. There Same was. one. No. Well, and let me, I'm going to throw this out there. This takes a different tangent. But sitting here as an HR professional, uh, you know, kind of the theme for the show is, you know, this is our leadership moment. There's never been a more important time to be in HR. I, by and large, have been supremely disappointed with my HR colleagues. I'm not talking about people I'm friends with or whatever. I'm talking about overall. Uh, I mean, even our governing body. This thing was seen as something, I mean, all the publications and the uh, direction that you would get from SHRM, for instance, was why we need to go ahead and implement this. You don't don't even wait. I mean, uh, you know, the president has asked even when it got appealed and turned down the first time. President asked us to do it anyway. Well, then we should do it without any regard for what that means. I think if you're, you know, human resources, if you're in HR, you're really good a lot of times in reading rules. You got your rule book. You got your employee handbook. You got policies. You got SOPs and procedures and all these things. And it's real easy as an HR professional to go directly to the line of the rule and say, this is the rule. You're not doing the rule. You have to leave. I mean, you, human behavior is motivated by a few things, but mostly it's motivated by fear. Fear and then some of the more um, primal emotions, anger, and some of those things. You had a lot of people who are so fearful that you know their judgment is is off. Their judgment's off. You, you, you can't say that you are a... Uh, purveyor of science, if you were willing to force everybody to get an experimental drug injected into their body. It was early September, um, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus because I know a lot of people did this. It, I was copied on an email from somebody in HR who was very panicky about, oh my God, we need to implement this now. Did you see this? We've got to implement it. And I had to quickly shut that down because one thing you don't want to ever do in HR is panic your people. <laughs> that's, that's generally a bad idea. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you don't, you don't, you can't be reactionary. You can't afford to be reactionary in HR because you really have to get all sides of the story. I mean, it's like when you have a, a something as simple as a, an employee that complains about their boss, you want to talk to the boss about the employee too, vice versa. You got to get the whole picture. And this was at a time when they were still, trying to push it as an ETS. They had a date that was out in, um, I think it was originally supposed to go into effect in October. And I knew, and so I, I told them, look, this is still, 
going, this is going to be appealed. I mean, 27 states sued the Biden administration over this. Um, it was not going to be a, a, an easy thing to implement. And so I knew that eventually it was going to end up going to the Supreme Court. And that's exactly what happened. It got, it got overturned. Then another court of appeals overturned that overturn. And then the Supreme Court did the final flip. So we've had all this you know, ton of fun going through the legal system and getting to watch how it works. But it just, you have to, I mean, it's not, it's not like we've been through this before and everybody knew what to do. So it, I don't want to sound like people were bad. I just think that it was a real good reminder about why you can't be reactionary. Right. And so this is what's so confusing to me is who, who there's, there's national laws and state laws. I thought the states were supposed to be responsible for the health care aspect. Well, here, here's the deal. It, and why people kept saying it's unconstitutional, this thing, because, you know, any rights that are not explicitly given to the federal government, this is the 10th Amendment. Anything that is not specifically given to the, the federal government in the Constitution is reserved for state rights. So this was, this is, and should be state decisions. And even more so, get down to more local municipalities. Because if you're doing, I mean, how stupid is it for people who are in D.C., a very congested, you know, people are all over each other, to implement a one-size-fits-all solution that they're going to try to enforce in Montana? I mean, because I think bureau- that's in a nutshell. Bureaucrats, bureaucrats are deciding, making health care decisions. Which is judges. more disturbing. No. <laughs> yes. Bureaucrats are the ones that keep pushing it, so the judges have to make a decision. But here's here, uh, again, being in HR, this is something that really, uh, I hope every HR professional felt this too, is the way that they were doing this, are to use a, an agency, a federal agency, that, how do we elect people to OSHA? Do you know? Mm-mm. We don't. They're just hired. Right? Nobody elects those people. Good. So you have uh, an organization that has... I mean, you have no recourse against what are we going to do? Vote them out again when we don't vote? That's why the politic, you know, a lot of politicians are trying to, they kind of, I don't know, throw the responsibility of making these tough, unpopular decisions. They throw it on an agency or, or a bureaucrat. That's why, you know, Fauci's just getting killed because he's having to say a lot of the stuff that, you know, nobody wants to hear, but it's not like we can elect him. All we can do is, you know, try to get him out of whatever he is. He's a bureaucrat. So you have all these bureaucrats making these decisions and there's no one that you can just point to and say, you were responsible for this bad decision. There's no accountability. Mm-hmm. And that, that bugs me. So yeah, you have, I mean, around here with, we, there's so, you know, we're in big healthcare, a mecca of healthcare between Dallas and Fort Worth. There's hospitals and everywhere. Um, all the signage and everything we've seen about these heroes, these people who maintained who worked, who were, you know, right there in the belly of the beast when people were terrified. Um, there, there's something very special about being able to do that. And then, you know, we've, I, I work in a healthcare company. We have people who have chosen to retire rather than do this. And that is, uh, you know, good for some of them if they can afford to do that, but not a lot of people can afford to do that. And we're in a pandemic, a healthcare crisis. You can't fire healthcare providers. <laughs> That 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 just doesn't that doesn't hold water with me. Those some hot takes there. It does. It gets me angry all over again. A lot of this is uh, still true. Um, I don't I don't know if you saw um, Sean Penn, who's always good for a ridiculous take. He was just interviewed and said that people who are uh, 
non-vaccinated should be required by law to remain in their homes, um, have no jobs. Oh. Yeah. And uh, I guess at some point. Who's he? Sean Penn. Oh, God, I love you. Sean Penn, he is... Isn't that an actor? Yeah, he's an actor. He used to oh, play. it's the actor. Yeah, Spicoli. Remember? Oh, yeah. gosh. He's well, done other things. But that's yeah. enough said. We can move on. Let's okay. go to something better. Okay. Well, that and that was that was a hot one, remember, because, you know, they were. They were trying to use HR to kind of do their dirty work, and OSHA, for that matter. So let's move on to a maybe a little bit more upbeat episode or two. Yeah, Jack may have to help us do this. Yeah, you remember um, we had our good friend uh, Sarah Moe on, right? Yes. Now, Sarah Moe, just to reset, she's the founder and CEO of Sleep Health Specialist. And she's been on before. She's a real um, popular guest, and I've actually brought her out to our company as well. She talks about sleep, and she's a sleep scientist. Well, this was our second episode. We were talking about sleep deprivation. This was Running on Empty with Sarah Moe. And there are a lot of things that we can do to help our sleep, but we have a real friendly um, relationship with Sarah, so we didn't just talk about the facts. We got into some fun stuff, too. So we're about to hear that now. Here comes Sarah. Yeah, Karen, if there's a lull in the conversation, she will volunteer to do whatever it is that you're, I just, anytime we're, we're at a group meeting, they're like, you know, we need somebody to volunteer. I'm like, oh no. I have oh, done no. a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. What are, that's not the, what I, that's not, I need to say yes to more of those things, honey. That's being compassionate and, and, mm-hmm. in fulfilling my need to socialize and it's all been in positive ways. That's a very, um common theme that we've heard these last few years from caretakers. That means you have a caretaking heart. There is something in you that despite the fact that you may want to say no, sometimes you are a human who has to ensure everybody else's happiness and comfort. And that brings you happiness and comfort. So you very much do have that caretaker personality. See, John, it's good. He's just mad because I had my friends, my best friend, Arlene's 50th (laughs) birthday party at our house on his birthday. (laughs) When was your party? See? No. Well, was no so party. wait, wait. Was no-, <laughs> no, wait, stop. That's not true. So what happened was she ended up getting p- testing positive for COVID. So we had to move it back one week. So it actually didn't happen, but he was mad. And I told him he was selfish. <laughs> he was yeah. mad that I was going to have my friend who's turning 50. It's not like it was her 48th. It was her 50th right. birthday. Okay. So what birthday was yours? 56. Okay. I'm with Karen on this one. Yeah, thank you. See, everybody <laughs> says that because they're trying and to be nice I, to her. Now Nobody I have cares it on. about no, no. Be nice to me. I, I appreciate your kindness as well, but 50 is a big deal. One of the many instances we will hear where everybody loves Karen and takes up for Karen because I'm just such a meanie or something, but that was pretty funny. It is interesting. In fact, we have in Minnesota here something called the Sleep Forensic Institute. And these are some sleep docs and researchers that are able to use the sleep forensics to basically prove or disprove claims like that. Because so many people do things and say, oh, whoops, I killed my wife. Her head's in the trunk, but I was asleep. Uh And now we have the ability to say that uh, we can prove if that's true or not. Wow. See, Dang it. in fact, okay. there was a case years ago where um, a man was on trial for rape. And I'm not sure if you know this, but for impotent men, they are unable to achieve erections. But for non-impotent men, all of the non-impotent men get erections in REM sleep. In that specific stage of sleep, you will get an erection, whether or not you are aware of it. Uh, and that's what you know, 
sorry to be vulgar, but morning wood when men wake up. Yeah. Hey, this show just reached a whole new demographic now. (laughs) Bring it on. Bring it on. I love this. You were just in REM. It's not like you were having an exciting dream. It's just that stage of sleep. So this specific defendant was saying it couldn't have been me. I'm impotent. So they actually did a test. It's called nocturnal penile tumescence, where we're able to see if an erection was achieved in REM sleep. And it was he was lying. Oh, <laughs> wow. So that I just learned so much right there in that last two minutes. <laughs> so he, he claimed to be somebody who had to sleep on the ground, but he could actually put up a tent is what you're saying. <laughs> oh, John. Oh, my God, John. Oh, that was a terrible, terrible pun at the end. You Sorry are about that. just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all, why did you skip over the first one when talking about the birthday? Do you now, in hindsight, look back and go, okay, that was kind of probably selfish of you? Selfish now that not. I'm turning 50 this year? I think it was a perfectly reasonable reaction, to be honest with you. I think that was... Uh, <sighs> You're still going to defend it. Well, you know, it was... it was. That's uh, fine. You, yeah, move on. Reactionary. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, Sarah's a great guest and I know we'll have her on again and I love talking to her. And, uh, now that, um, I know where her loyalties lie, we'll have to have Karen on as well. <laughs> um, third episode is something we like to do. This is also one of the more popular episodes. This was the year in review. So again, we're doing another review of a review. This is when we sit down together and I do a year in review with the redhead and the redhead of course is my beautiful wife, Karen. And we talk about things. So guess what? Guess who the Supreme Court listened to? Uh-oh. Okay, what? <laughs> judges. So judges, not medical professionals. Judges. For which mandate? Both? Yeah. Because I look it up. Sonia Sotomayor, she's one of them. Uh, Sotomayor. She's on the Supreme Court. Okay. She is the Supreme Court. Oh, okay. What about <laughs> Fletcher? Uh, I don't know who Fletcher is. All right. What about Barrett? Mm, yeah, Amy Coney Barrett. Oh, really? So these are so I'm looking through the like transcripts of them going back and forth. Yeah, well, they they write. So their, you know what they did? They heard each other. So judges heard each other debate and made a decision off of judges. They didn't. They, I don't see anywhere in here where medical professionals stood up and said why this is not a good idea. Okay, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just clarify a little bit about what you meant. You you just thought it was. Interesting that this whole decision was taking out, taken out of medicine, the hands of medical professionals, and it became a court illegality case. Is that fair? Yeah. You're frozen. Okay. I don't care. I'm always frozen. Okay, because that was kind of funny when you said, you know what they did? <laughs> they talked to judges. <laughs> I don't know how all of that stuff works. Well, they, they do. They go back and forth. They write opinions. And there's, anyway. It's just dumb that it's left up to judges and make decisions like that. And what were we talking about? What were the mandates? That was the OSHA mandate and the, what was the other one that uh, impacted only uh, medical professionals, but the CSR mandatively. Anyway, so they, both of them got all the way to the Supreme Court, even though everybody knew the whole damn thing was unconstitutional from the very beginning. So okay. yeah, I'm, I'm going to start breathing heavy. Yeah, move on. All right. Uh, episode four was with Molly McGrath. It was called Not Turning Back with Molly McGrath. Uh, Molly is the founder of Hiring and Empowering, LLC. Uh, And our conversation was about possibility, the value of mentorship and coaching. Um, She's got a pretty cool story about 
you know, she took a big risk on her own, left, uh, you know, one life that was already pretty much preordained. She grew up with a big family in Buffalo, moved west, and started her started her life, which is always impressive when somebody has the cajones to do that. So look, we're going to listen to Molly. So they brought in a national legal coach. Um, and coaching was not even a street term at all. And I was assigned a street term at all. And I was assigned to be his assistant for lack of a better term. And I will never forget the very first day that I met my boss. I got on a plane, went to a conference in Tampa. He was doing a kickoff for the very first. I mean, this was like when lawyers, he was Tony Robbins train. So he shows up like Tony Robbins. And you can imagine how the heads were blown off of highly analytical. Um, and it, and it was my first exposure ever to any type of coaching at the tender age of 26, 27. And um, from there, it was hook, line, and sinker. So I guess we all remember that special moment when we first see Tony Robbins. <laughs> oh, is that what that was about? I was like, well, what's so special about this clip? No, she was just talking about how that was her first introduction. I mean, I think it's everywhere now. Everybody knows these coaches and motivational speakers, and you know, we have TED Talks, and we have all this stuff. It wasn't that long ago. This, it was not a thing. And, of course, I think Tony Robbins was, you know, for all his ridiculousness, he did bring it into the forefront where he is uh, he created kind of a profession. So Molly had a little bit more to say. I want to got to set this up. She is talking about employee retention here. Oh, they'll never, ever, ever, ever leave you. And if they even consider it to your point, I was on a podcast this morning and they were talking about, you know, there's the there's the onboarding and then there's the exit interview when an employee leaves. Right. But when somebody comes in to resign, they were talking about the stay interview, re-enrolling people. In, and I'd never heard that term and I loved it because re-enrolling people if you can get vulnerable and raw and real and someone comes in and resigns and you can figure out and get deeply curious and, and be authentic and be quiet and be present and find a way to keep them. I can't tell you how many people I've made job offers to and they have gone in to give their resignation and then they've come back. And they're like, you know what? I sat down and I prep people. I said, listen, you're going to go in and give your resignation. They are going to give you unicorns and roses and the sun and star moons. If you're as good as you tell me you are. So what are you going to do? How are you going to handle that? Oh, no, no, no. They won't do it. I know they won't do it. I know they won't do it. I would say right now, it, thankfully, it's climbing that it's up to 60 to 70 percent. Come back and say, guess what? They did it. I'm like, no kidding. Next up, we have Hanel Turner, Hanel VP of Content and Curation for the All In Company, and we were talking about hiring assessments, including one seemed pretty rudimentary but proved to be a challenge. Well, you obviously you know, had other qualities that they thought I were did. valuable. I was the only one who could put up with that guy. <laughs> there you go. You know, it's I like had me. a client, and they a- um, <clears throat> they had a, uh, a distribution, and so. They had truck, you know, part of the one of the roles they were looking for was a driver. So the driver would come pick up the pallets from the shop, drop them off. And when he dropped them off, there was an inventory take. And um, he one of the skills tests that they do for drivers is a math test. And somebody was referred. Mm-hmm. Some This guy was referred um, by the owner or, or somebody, something like that. 
And so, of course, they said, okay, well, we're not, well, yeah, we're not going to do the skills test. He's hired. We're good to go. And sure enough, everybody had, almost everyone had gone home for the day. And um, the HR person comes downstairs and finds this guy manually counting the pallets on the truck, uh, taking these big pallets, taking them down one by one and counting them. She's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm counting the pallets. She's like, well... You could also just do five times two times three. That'll give you the number of how many pallets there are. And he didn't understand that. And it was incredible because a simple type of math test and would have helped highlight or outline that. And I've never heard a better example of like the value that a skills test can provide. But other ones... Right. It's got to be. It's got to be something that adds value and tells you something about that person's skills. Skills like a lot of things are teachable. Um, you know, like how to use Microsoft or how to open up Word. Um, other things are not. So you've really got to think about these like, skills tests and assessments before throwing it out there. And, and by the way, everybody, now that I've I've figured this out, there were, there were thirty pallets. <laughs> there, there were 30, five times three times three. <laughs> I knew I should have just stuck to numbers with tens. <laughs> now on to longtime buddy, John Briggs. John and I worked together back in the Stone Age at Alcon Labs. Uh, real bright guy, real creative, and he comes up with some amazing programs for uh, development with employees, including a real unique plan to help your people uh, add back value as they're cruising into retirement. This is a great interview with John Briggs. That's really kind of what I, I sort of stumbled on this idea that, you know, we put so much time and emphasis and energy and, and resources into the onboarding of people um, into organizations. And I, I just, there's there's this kind of opposite end of that in terms of offboarding for people who are are some of your best tenured and seasoned folks, um, that there really is no, there's no kind of offboarding process. And that's kind of where the, the idea started. It's evolved uh, pretty significantly since then, where it's turned from uh, the initial sort of uh, <laughs> idea of how do I make my life easier to <laughs> actually when I uncovered um, in doing a lot of research over the last uh, pretty close to a year, um, including lots of interviews and, and conversations that um, there's a, there's a whole lot more to it than what meets the eye uh, when someone goes into retirement or trans makes that transition in life. And the more that I understood and the more that I understood the, the impact that it has on human life, uh, mm-hmm. the, the more I, I became invested in, uh, in, in this project and think this is the right time in my life for it. Be either, uh, your role is going to be maybe cut back a little bit. Maybe you're going to be uh, minimized a little bit, be a consultant, that kind of thing. But that can be a big uh, a mental blow to you if that is truly, you know, if your identity is wrapped up in your profession and that's going away, that's pretty traumatic for some people. And that's why I think, uh, you know, I know you, you included some of this in here in the packet that we reviewed about now that mental health is such a uh, I guess it's very topical, especially with the pandemic and everything, what it's done to so many people. Well, people who are moving out of a profession, too, it may have been expedited by this whole thing. I think 
it's a, it's a problem. And especially for the people who have given so many years to the company. And, um, you know, what we found is that uh, the research shows that people spend more time planning. This is including financial planning for retirement. They spend more time planning for their weddings than they do their <laughs> retirement. Um, so <clears throat> understanding the, the, uh, <laughs> the statistics with weddings and successful marriages, you can imagine <laughs> right, what happens on the other side of that where there's no preparation other than potentially financially, no preparation for what you what you identified, which are these tethers that hold us, identity being one of them. The other three that I sort of latched onto in my research was purpose, connection, and community. All of those things change, um, and they change in any life transition. But in particular, with the number of people who are entering retirement age, any opportunity to have a significant impact on that group, uh, it's something that excites me a lot. Uh, and you brought up mental health. There's a there's a huge opportunity around mental health with that group of people. And that was John Briggs, a longtime friend and managing partner at Authentica. You can find John on LinkedIn. And I encourage you to do so. He's got some really unique ideas for your employees. Uh, next up, we're getting to what ended up being the most listened to episode of the year for us. And that was employee development, the real currency of retention with returning guest Julie Winkle Giuliani. And we, uh, she was one of my first guests way back when she came back and she brought the heat. You know how they uh, say that the number of digits in a phone number is dictated by what we can hold in our head. Right. And it kind of extends for me, you know, I just don't think the human brain, soul, psyche can juggle an infinite number of close relationships. And so during that extraordinary time, we had to double down on that tight circle, the closest mm. folks that we depended upon most. And so this, those strengthened at the expense of, of some of those looser ties, particularly with other uh, divisions, departments, functions. And there's a lot to be lost as we've, uh, if we, as we've um, found ourselves less connected in that way. Continuing with Julie, Karen asked her a question specifically about the book that we were discussing with her, which is Promotions Are So Yesterday. And once again, gets commended for great questions. Nobody commends me, by the way. I'm just throwing that out. So, I mean, because I read the article as well. It, this is every one of the recommendations here takes. Um, it, it's intentional. I mean, do you you have to in order to bring that um, connection back? I mean, it is. I can see why it's it's important for leaders to. Um, you know, intentionally create these scenarios because they're not going to happen um, with, without without that. Yeah, yeah. With the, which with can the seem a little bit forced in some ways, uh, you know. But you have to. We have to start somewhere, and um, hopefully, when you implement some of these practices, then it just become it doesn't become quite as forced. It becomes more more natural. But we have to start somewhere. Yeah the the loss of serendipity. You know, and just that ad hoc mm-hmm. sort of uh, connection does. And I, I love your use of the word intention, intentionality. Um, and and I, I, I don't think I'm overreaching when I say I think that, again, these last couple of years have heightened the importance of intentionality. I think we've, we recognize mm-hmm. um, how much we need to uh, be deliberate about if we're going to make things happen. And yet I don't know that 
intention needs to feel contrived. Um, mm-hmm. in, in fact, there's something about almost the intention of making it happen that makes it more special, not less. I'm going to reset real quick, too, if anybody's going to join midway through this. But we are talking to Julie Winkle Giulioni, uh, author of Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go, author of Promotions Are So Yesterday, and all-around evangelical person when it comes to development of employees. I mean, you are you are committed. That is that is your game. Why is that? When did that become so critical and such a part of who you are, the development of employees? You know, it was when I was about 30 and I hit my first just okay boss, not even bad boss, just okay boss. The first part of my career was, I was just, I lived under the stars and had one boss after another who was just a natural developer of people. And I took it for granted. I had no idea the, the truly the magic that was happening around me. I just knew I loved work and there was nothing more joyful than showing up and doing what I was getting paid for. And I didn't understand what my friends were talking about when they complained about it because it was everything I imagined going to work um, for these You were living right. You were living right and you didn't even realize it. (laughs) I had no idea. And then I had the experience of contrast. Not even a bad boss, just an okay boss. We should also be so lucky as to just have a, an okay boss be one of our uh, turning points. But that leads us into another conversation about creating magic at work with Amy Lynn Durham. And Amy was a fantastic guest. She talks about spiritual intelligence and a few things that you don't hear about a lot. Uh, very inspiring talk with her. And this also ended up being one of the most listened to episodes for 2022. Here's our friend, Amy Lynn Durham. I went to... I was combining spirituality and business. And then I discovered the Hmm. SQ21, which is the 21 skills for the workplace for spiritual intelligence, which is the up level to EQ. And so Mm -hmm. I I really, (laughs) I really am not as passionate about EQ because I think SQ is where it's at. And it is what every high level leader needs to understand and skill build in. It's a faith neutral system. It is um, the top of the pyramid as far as intelligences go. And it basically, if you practice these skills, what it helps you um, build muscle in is the ability to make wise and compassionate decisions while maintaining inner and outer peace. I guess I hear, you know, compassion and, and spirituality and um, another term you just used, but but I'm curious as to the, how do men respond to that? Are they, are, I, I'm sorry to say this, but men don't seem to really tap into those a lot in, uh-huh. in, in business, as far as my experience, right? So I'm more, I'm curious as to, is there a shift? Are men starting to open up and and grasp these um, concepts or do they tend to be, um, reject them or not be as open as women? Yeah. Such a great question. Here's what I'm finding. I'm finding that, and I, Mm -hmm. I found this before I left my job because the majority of individuals on my team were men and they have not been afforded 
a safe space to show vulnerability. I don't. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a welcome place for them to come into if they want to explore these high level leadership skills. And I think they're relieved because they're actually given permission with the data. Hmm. (laughs) Data always works with, with, uh, with this. Uh, they're actually given permission with the data to explore these skills because the data is there that it improves productivity and profitability. And that was Amy Lynn Durham, Creating Magic at Work. And that was a really deep conversation. You ought to check her out. She's also, uh, you can find her on LinkedIn as well. Uh, next up was something, one of those, I'm an impulse kind of guy at times. And we discovered this, what we thought was the coolest product we'd seen, uh, the Oot Box. And that's O-O-T, stands for out of the box. Uh, we didn't know that at the time, but this is the co-founder, Allison Zofan, and we reached out to her when we stumbled across their product out at a pickleball facility, <laughs> of course, in Dripping Springs, Texas. Uh, brilliant idea, and they actually presented on the Shark Tank. They did some pretty cool stuff, but we're going to talk to Allison and how this idea became a business. Now, uh, so we're talking to Allison Zofan, and you're a co-creator, co-owner. Owner, co-founder, co-founder, co-founder of Ootbox, and it, it only took me about two weeks to figure out what the Oot stood for, <laughs> and it was out of the box. And just a real quick story to uh, to set the for the listeners, kind of a setup. We are pickleball fanatics, and we were in Austin at a place called Dreamland in Dripping Springs, which is a great facility, by the way. I highly recommend you go there if you like pickleball. And one of the things that caught our eye there, though, was there was these little mini portable offices. Cool. There, there had to be like six of them, I think. I don't know. There was there's quite a few of them. And as a matter of fact, at the end, we were sweating so bad out there because it's Austin in, <laughs> in July. And we, we snuck into a couple of them because they had AC in them, too. We're like, what is going on here? <laughs> they each had, and it was the units that have the full side uh, window. One side's a full window. Yeah. And we were just thinking, this is the coolest thing ever. So I just made a note to myself and uh, eventually reached out, tried to find out who the heck was uh, behind this brilliant idea that we had seen. And you didn't wait. It was like immediate. He never <laughs> waits on anything. Let's be real. <laughs> okay, yeah. Before we got home, he had a whole conversation going with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Allie was a real responsive too. Uh, another one of your, uh, your colleagues there, but it is such a neat idea. And these, what is the actual square footage of these, of the boxes? Uh, they're eight by 10. So they're eight by 10. Yeah, so and it's just, and there had there was a reason for that size specifically, right? Yeah. So um, in a lot of places around the country, permitting zoning for temporary structures starts at 120 square feet. So um, in some places, if you're below that uh, and you're not selling food out of it or um, other specific use cases for how to use the box there, there aren't permits that are required. You came up, when did you guys first come up with like, you're going to do this idea? So the, the whole story is um, so Robbie previously uh, had, had another startup and he was in the process of selling it and couldn't talk about selling the startup at 
his office because it was a small team and an open floor plan. And he didn't need them to hear all the confidential conversations he was having. And uh, he and his wife had just had their first daughter and um, couldn't have confidential professional business conversations with a newborn crying, or at least wasn't as acceptable as it is now. And right. so with, with a lot of nervous energy, he went in his backyard with no prior building experience and built what we all came to call his escape pod. And <laughs> it was this small little office space in his backyard that he could go and have his phone calls, do his work. Uh, and then what he found was that uh, his neighbors started using it. And I was uh, one of those neighbors because everybody <laughs> needs that extra space sometimes. Uh, continuing on with Allison, what would you do if you actually went on Shark Tank? And what would you do if you didn't know what time you were going on stage and they ended up putting you on last and you sat there the whole day? Well, we're going to hear a little bit about that here. Uh, so you guys had a really interesting experience. One thing that, you know, is baffling that you did this too. Y'all went on Shark Tank. We did. Now, how how far into your venture was it before you were able to get in there or even thought about that? So we had, um, you know, right at the kind of in the fall of 2020, um, we were on a, a front page cover slip of the New York Times as uh, innovative companies that launched during the pandemic. And um, as a result of that, um, producers from Shark Tank saw that and um, and then reached out to us in February of 2021 to ask if we would be interested in applying to be on the show. So that was you know pretty pretty early in in the process for applying and, and going through the whole interview process. Um, take some time. We we filmed our episode in July of. 2021 and it aired in March of 2022. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, yeah. that's a process. So it was a, it was a long process. And, you know, even from where the business was when we started the application process to, to where it is when we aired was, you know, total growth and in, in a whole different, you know, segment of the, of the company. Were you nervous? Very nervous. I mean, I would be like I was, out of my gourd. <laughs> I was so nervous. And, you know, you're, you spend a day in each team has a trailer. And mm -hmm. um, we happened to film the day that a lot of um, food products were being filmed. And mm -hmm. so getting everyone else's food products prepped and like working out the timing of that meant that they couldn't tell us when we were going to film. And oh, but they, they wow. kept on saying, we might be soon. We might be soon. So you're sitting in this trailer knowing that like the biggest moment of your life could happen at any minute, keeping your energy up. We're nervous as anything. Robbie's like pacing around outside. Oh. And I'm like, you have to keep it together. We have to get this done. And, um, you know, we, we were the last people or people to film for the day. So we got on to the studio at, I think, probably like 10. And we filmed close to 730 at night. And oh, um, But 
for as much as Robbie was pacing around and I was worried about him all day, he did amazing in the moment. So that was good. Now entering the home stretch, and then we got into, we actually kicked off season four in 2022, and we were able to record four episodes for the turn of the year, the first of which was a special episode. We timed it to uh, celebrate Veterans Day, and we did so with Lieutenant Colonel, a retired Lieutenant Colonel, Kathy Gallowitz. Uh, She has a program called Vanguard Veteran, and she's the author of a book called Beyond Thank You for Service. She may be the most energetic and passionate person outside of my wife that we've ever had on this show. They, of course, became besties, and it was a great interview, and we were so lucky to have her. Let's talk to the lieutenant colonel. Um, Grammy's a Desert served, Storm veteran. Right, in Desert Storm. So <laughs> oh, great. She did. Yeah. Well, she and so, so, so I was a flight nurse for a little while in the reserves, mm-hmm. and um, I just thought that was a great, a great experience. But you know, we've got a lot of our, a lot of military nurses that have served for many, many, many years and done great work, and you know, help help save a lot of our, our warriors. So, how do we help? Like, how do how, do you just? I mean, you're one person. There's a lot of companies that we need to educate, and 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 you know. How do you even tackle this problem? We're one one organization at a time. I mean, are companies reaching out to you? Like, how 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 is your organization working? The first thing I try to do is educate people about the value of veteran talent. Mm-hmm. So, yes, large companies have some resources and some you know people and funds that they can invest in a veteran hiring program. And I tell you what. You know, companies all over are, are hiring dedicated military recruiters, but in the medium to smaller businesses, it's a, it's a different landscape. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I target different kinds of employers who I think, you know, they, they may have a, a mindset that's like, oh, yeah, this really makes sense that a, a military person could do this, which is sort of false. OK, but for instance, you know, a truck driving company. Right. Or. um other mechanically related companies. Yes, there's a a, a kind of a great, a great match there. What I find curious though, is there's a lot of insurance companies that are going out and, um, Hmm. and recruiting veteran talent, which isn't an automatic or there's banks that are going out and um, it's so good for them. They're, they're, they're being creative. So, you know, how do you do this? Well, develop relationships, educate them about how veterans strengthen their workforce and encourage them to get involved in the veteran community and expose them to other employers who really get the the value of the veterans and you know offer them information in bite-sized chunks you know talk educate them about military culture educate them about military skills translators on my website i have an onboarding checklist that i have created with civilian hr professionals that, you know, provides mm-hmm. you a template, you know, to, to really do a good job of that. This, how many, about how many veterans are there, I guess, that are leaving the military on an annual basis? You're asking some really good questions, Karen. So uh, about 200,000 leave every year. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting about that, kind of the general rule of thumb is one third, one third, one third, one third will want to stay kind of where they exited from. Mm-hmm. One third potentially will want to go back home and 
one third are are open for uh, jobs anywhere. But you know, I, I believe that it's more like um, you know, three out of three will take a great job with great benefits and a great culture and are be willing to move uh, for the opportunity. I mean, you know, military people, just like anybody, you know, they want to, you know, take care of their family and, and do well and contribute. Karen, finish your well, thought. I want to hear what you have to say. What I'm saying is that then if we're not watching traditional television, John, you just brought up a point. There was a great commercial. Then we have to be reaching these people through other means. And so what other means can we reach them through? Hmm. Right. And, and so where, how do we, how do we, whether it's social media or it's, um, I, I don't know, pickleball well, tournaments. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm at a loss I, here. I, I listened to a couple of your episodes. You guys are big into pickleball. Aren't you? We're big into pickleball. <laughs> I can't believe the range of pickleball. Oh, my Isn't gosh, it the insane? amount of people that are doing it, right? Oh, my um, gosh. You know what? I can see us doing a, a an outreach for, 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 um, veterans, veterans and, and those that are serving. I would love to run a tournament like that yes. where we're doing it yes. for them because pickleball brings happiness. Yes. Yes. It brings yes. so much happiness and it brings community. Yes. And you know what? That's the idea right there. Yes. So you can it's have beautiful. an event that brings the community and our military together through pickleball. Yes. Now before, I know we're kind of getting on time here, but uh, Karen, you prompted something in my head and I don't want to lose it. Don't or, lose can it. We, can, can we shift for a minute? Yes. You go. And, I think, Karen, what you were asking was, generally, I think, uh, you know, how can we connect more with the veteran population? What, mm -hmm. what more can we do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I am very actively involved in equipping volunteers to develop military ministries. I saw that. I was going to ask you about that because our faith is a big part of our lives. And I saw oh, the military ministries. Wonderful. And no, it's awesome. Wonderful. Um when I was in uh, in uh, Ohio, we started a nonprofit and we, you know, we trained some volunteers. The VA started this initiative uh, uh, probably a decade or so ago, uh, just educating the clergy about their role in helping with post-military transition. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, spiritual resiliency is certainly a big component of health, right? Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, I am just so passionate about helping volunteers. Now, it doesn't have to be a nurse, doesn't have to be a counselor, doesn't have to be a pastor, and really does not necessarily have to be a veteran to bring people together in your place of worship. And it's kind of like leadership 101. When you bring people together, you get to know them, get to know their needs, find out what their interests are, build relationships, build trust, and then start doing things start doing things indeed that was kathy gallowitz lieutenant colonel retired lieutenant colonel and we expect to talk to her hopefully every veterans day uh getting into uh, excuse me season four episode two we talked to amelia wilcox she's the founder and ceo of Navati, and they uh have a great business model it's a pandemic of mental health is what they're addressing but her story is also pretty unique in that she had a business that focused on one thing, COVID hit, boom, zero revenues, pivoted, and has another successful venture already up and running. It's a pretty inspiring story about how to just, uh, sometimes you just got to make the change and go forth. Here's Amelia Wilcox. It took a little while, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's an amazing story. I mean, big companies, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies had trouble dealing with that. And for uh, an entrepreneur to be able to handle that and come back 
like you did is it's really an impressive accomplishment. Uh, you know, kudos to you. Thanks. Uh, and what was the, I mean, I'm looking at your certifications and everything. Obviously, you have a background in you know, physical massage. And um, what made the transition to mental health your next step? Why the pivot there? Yeah, so personally and professionally, like my background is in exercise, nutrition, and massage. So I've always been in the wellness space. Um, and my first job was at the YMCA in Kansas City. Um, and I've always just been like really into to fitness and health. Um, personally, I started my own like mental health journey probably, probably like 10 or 12 years ago now. Um, and I have just seen such great results with therapy that I was just, I was known for telling everybody like everyone needs therapy. Even if you don't think you need therapy, you need therapy. So it can help <laughs> everyone. So I would tell my family that all the time. Um, and then we also have, um, like my husband's a first responder. So there's like PTSD issues that have to be worked out in that kind of a, a role. And we've got a couple kids, um, you know, with ADHD and anxiety and autism spectrum disorder. And, uh, so we have leveraged therapy very much in our personal lives. And so when the opportunity came up and I saw there was a huge need, uh, around mental health. It was something I was personally passionate about and very adjacent to the wellness space we were already in. I thought we can solve this problem of access to care and scale a mental health kind of like service provider business because I already know how to do that. I already did that with massage. And I see on your website too, that you have three, uh, free HR communities. Um, I don't know, John, if you looked at the website that much, but that's a pretty cool thing. So you've got, you got three different opportunities here for HR executives and executive support groups and HR support groups. What uh, that I haven't seen any offerings like that specifically just for HR folks. Well, you did say there was like 98 or something said 98% of HR people. What was it? 98. I wrote it down somewhere, but something crazy like 98% of HR professionals suffered from an increase in anxiety and depression during the last couple of years, which doesn't surprise me. Um, because there was a it was yeah. taxing on well, your department specifically. You said this was our time to shine well, in HR. <laughs> yeah. You know, see, I've got this whole theory, Amelia, bear with me. <laughs> um, HR, uh, this was the leadership moment for human resources. And I think we started strong, then I think we blew it. I think we totally blew it towards the end. And I think programs like what you have with uh, mental well-being, because I can tell you that's that's what a lot of uh, peers and colleagues that I talk to anyway, they're trying to that's that's the one they're trying to the key they're trying to find to unlock that, because we do have the res, the residual effects of covid. And this is like the prime opportunity. I'm guessing you still HR. You mentioned still your customer. You go to HR. This is a great chance to. Yep to sort of make up for some, some missed opportunities because we, I don't think we, uh, I don't know. There, there was, there was so much, if you think about what impacted people, there was the actual disease. Uh, but there was a lot of things that we enforced upon ourselves that that's, what's going to be, that's, what's going to leave a, a bigger residual effect you know, the lockdowns and the isolations and fearing for your job, not being essential enough or uh, furloughs, not being able to come back all the, this was big, big stuff that people were dealing with maybe for the first time in their life. And I don't think uh, human resources rose to the challenge when it came to emotional and mental support. 
I don't think they were equipped. That's a fair point. Okay, that's a fair point. It felt like they had the, the support that they need. I mean, you're talking to somebody in HR, and at the start of COVID, like, they're trying to manage, like, how do we send all these employees home? Do they get to take the office chairs or not? Like, how do we manage their time? <laughs> how do we know that they're working? What new policies do we need in place? How do we manage security um, with all of these employees? And and then, like, are our benefits good enough? And what we saw as a company is we saw that first year, it was like HR was like, we need help. We need help uh, for their employees. And they were going to bat for them, but the C-level hadn't signed off yet. So for the most part, HR was like, yes, we want a program like this. And they couldn't mm. get the buy-in. They couldn't get the budget um, approved. So HR really did a lot of that that heavy lifting up front. And then they had to, um, you would think they would be at the table. Things settled down a little bit. You know, in my company, they took it serious. I mean, we really are um, doing things they've never done before. It's a credit to the CEO. But it really comes down to that, that you know, your C-level leaders if they're not believers by now, you still have that you still have that hurdle to overcome. So, you know, what? I'm I'm going to take it back that we we failed the second half. I think that maybe a lot of it was we were not necessarily prepared or equipped. And the other part of it is we were people going through the same stuff. And so we were dealing with it, yep. our own families, our own jobs, our own lives and trying to keep a brave face for our employees. So uh, it was a tough role, but I do think. That was the leadership moment for HR that you know, you've got to get yourself at the table if for no other reason than what we just saw happen in the last two years. Moving right along to episode three in season four. And again, that was Amelia Wilcox. But episode three brought us Carrie Smith Taboo. And she was an author, well, was an author, is an author, and was a trial attorney. Her book, and this, of course, will catch your eye, is uh, Blooming, Finding Gifts in the Shit of Life. It was an intentional title, too, which I can appreciate. She was um, an unbelievable guest. The book is very inspiring. I would encourage anybody to get it if you really want to see how you overcome some huge obstacles in life. And uh, she was just as entertaining as she could be. Here's Carrie Smith to boot. Yeah, the the use of the word shit was very um, deliberate because it's a double (laughs) entendre. In that shit is quite literally fertilizer. Right. So, I mean, it's it's in the messes, failures, difficulties of life that we find the nutrients that we need to grow and bloom into our greatness. And I think that a lot of people tend to shove their traumas and failures and whatnot under the rug and pretend they didn't happen. But the true, um, the way you find success is to actually to claim those things and go back and re-examine them and find the gifts and the goodness in there and use it to propel you forward. Well, and you, you know what? You can never tell. Um, everybody's going through something, right? And and we all have, uh, you know, we live in a community uh, that it's a pretty affluent community. And I think if you were to walk around and you'd see people, you go, oh, man, they got it easy. And so, but nobody knows what it, what everyone's gone through. I mean, you know, Karen, we were laughing the other day. We, we were playing, um, we play pickleball. We're nuts about pickleball. And we do this one thing where every time you lose, you go down a court. And she was laughing about it, going, oh, man, I started in the mansion, and now I'm in the trailer park. And I said, well, it's actually, <laughs> you know, it's actually the opposite of your real life. Because, I mean, you know, she literally started. Her family had a dirt floor at one point and things like that. You know, I grew up in a one-bedroom house with my mom. It, you don't know where people come from, but I, I think um, you mentioned this. You own it, 
and you, you you use it almost as fuel, right? And fertilizer. That's how you Absolutely. Describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think exactly what you're talking about is one of the reasons I wrote the book. It's I feel like we make these snap judgments about mm-hmm. people. And in the HR world, it's, you know, oh. we talk about um <laughs> having these courses to take to help you stop uh what's the word I'm looking for? Um, when people discriminate, uh, oh, harassment, oh, yeah, yes, unconscious bias. Okay, unconscious bias is what I'm looking for. Yeah, and I think there's unconscious bias in a lot of different ways. I mean, with just from the way someone dresses or, or being a blonde, I think right. people make an assumption. So, part of the reason I wrote the book is because I realized that people's perception of me was so wildly wrong <laughs> <laughs> because they just didn't know my story. And I think it's so true for so many of us where, I mean, everybody has a story. Everybody has a different path, but it's just not fair to kind of make a snap judgment. I've gone to conferences where um, men have told me that they won't go to dinner with me. They'll go to dinner with these other men, but they won't even include me in the group because their wife might have a problem with it just because I'm, you know, a blonde female. John. And I'm like, that is so not, that is so not fair. I agree I with mean, you I'm wholeheartedly. Excluded. I with you sister. Cause let me tell you, this is the fight that we've had because it's like, he, I'm, I'm like, I'm, you can't just because I'm a girl, you can't exclude me from doing these things. Like if, if other guys have nefarious thoughts or whatever, I can't control that. That's not, you know, however they are, it, it's not my problem. And, and I can't be excluded from doing things or participating in things, even like pickleball with a bunch of men, <laughs> because, because I'm a woman, I will play just as exactly. hard and I will surpass the, those as many men as I can. And it's not fair just to sit me out because I'm a girl. Well, right. this, and this I conversation has taken a wildly <laughs> different turn. <laughs> <laughs> You're proving my point, Gary. Oh, but it's so true. And of course, I, I get offended on so many levels because part of me is also like, let's just be clear here. You have zero chance with me. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. right, right. Like, so, for you to assume that, that that would even be anything that could develop is really wildly inappropriate. Totally. That's funny. But anyway. That's but from, funny. from John's perspective, he's like, you just don't know how men are. And that's right. That's fine. If they are like that, then again, it's not my problem. <laughs> All right. Right. But it's incredibly frustrating as a woman to be left to left out of business opportunities Yeah, just mm-hmm. because, you know, you're an attractive woman. That's just right. not fair. Right. Yeah, I agree. I know. I feel sorry for all y'all, all the, all the pretty women in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. Some, some of this, it, it's similar to yours. And I had a pet question when I was still interviewed quite a bit and I would usually save it to the end. Um, and I would ask, uh, what's something about you that would surprise people to know? You know, just something that would give them an opportunity. And so when you were, we were talking about your answer, some, t- some people would give you something so trivial. It was just, you know, surface level stuff like, Oh, I, I'm really, I'm a, you know, I, I own cats or something <laughs> like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I you own know, cats. <laughs> um, have, you know, I have made, I, I have made higher decisions based on the answers to that. Because it, to me, I think it shows a lot about somebody's depth of character and their transparency. Have you have you had a similar experience where the answer to that one question can sometimes override some of the other good stuff you've heard? Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, um, uh, this is my first time saying this. Uh, oh, there was a guy oh. that I interviewed. 
<laughs> this is a, there's a guy I interviewed probably 15 years ago um, for a um, deputy general counsel position for a bank. And he was fabulous until we got down to that final um, question. And well, it wasn't just that question. It was also we he started sharing other things with me on a more personal level. I think that, that question opened the door. But he revealed to me that he the only time he missed work was to go um, to Star Trek conventions. Oh my! And <laughs> and wear costumes. And that he <laughs> and that he collected this those little collectibles for like oh. Star Wars and Star Trek. And all I could think of was I'm sitting across from the 40 year old virgin. That's exactly what I just thought. That is so funny. <laughs> yes. I literally was like, are you, am I being pumped here? Are you joking? <laughs> no. Oh this is somebody who's for a top executive role. This is what he's telling oh, me. And I was man. like, yeah, this isn't going to work. I had to include one last piece of audio from Carrie because it was just too good. And uh, you never know who might be following you. Listen to this. I'm not going to really embarrass you. There was there was such a funny funny part of your book, and I just I wrote it down because I had to ask you about it. And so don't get embarrassed. But it was uh, your chapter 15 when you know you're talking about your body is not normal, and you know all yes. people go through this thing where they're they're critical of their own body and all that. And you had a, you had this line in there about putting a uh, a restraining order against your ass <laughs> because it yes. was fun. <laughs> I laughed so hard about that. It was hilarious. I laughed so hard. I, ref I refer to my ass as the stalker. Because oh, it follows me around won't leave me alone. Was the greatest. That's hilarious. Was the greatest line. I mean, and I, I can't tell people enough what a, I mean, it's a, such a clever book. It's so helpful, but it's full of, it's full of funny stuff too. I mean, you really have, you have a way of taking oh, some of the some of these really too. tragic things, yeah, I mean, and putting I, a positive spin on it, though. Yeah, I have to read the whole book. He just handed me a, a chapter that just like I just could not even believe, and we won't go into that due to time. But I, it, people should read this book, um, and and I need to Thank read it further because so obviously that was the funniest thing I've ever heard. Is the <laughs> well, I also refer to it as the white shadow. <laughs> So it was great. It was great because you know what? Everybody has these insecurities and these things that they go through. And again, just own it. it yeah. Yesterday I was going, John, look. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's telling me, look, if I just had this wrinkle rubbed out and I'm like, oh, oh for God's sake. <laughs> <So much better. laughs> and we get to the one final episode. These were the guys from story. That's S T O R Y Y. Connor Snyder, Devin Gillen, uh, initially met Devin via LinkedIn. Uh, sorry, guys, but I did accept a, a solicitation request, which I hate to do, but he's just such a nice guy. Anyway, we talked to them about their product. It's all about the power of video, the power of branding. Uh, these guys are up-and-comers. You're going to hear about them soon. So let's talk to Connor and Devin. Story. And I remember, you know, my senior year of high school, we'd have our, like, senior class Facebook group, and I'd have secret groups with my buddies where we'd post <laughs> dumb stuff. And my parents would walk into the office be like, what are you doing on Facebook all day? You're not going to get a job making money with Facebook. <laughs> little do and, you know, parents. <laughs> yeah, little did we all know. Guess what? And, and so, <laughs> yeah, like, it, it, it's one of those things where I've loved tech, and I, and I love marketing tech especially, 
not because I, because marketing really at a fundamental level is about sharing a message, right? And mm-hmm. there's this really cool thing that as the internet has really um, gotten into our pockets in the last 10 years, yeah. there's so many ways to communicate and share our messages. And so I just, I, there's, there's always been this kind of like, um, I don't know, fundamental part of me that just loves the idea um, that the internet can help us all communicate better. We don't want to do paid ads forever because it's not predictable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, Connor has mentioned this before, but you're renting your audience instead of owning it. So what we realized is we're running all these ads, but you only get what you pay for and then your audience is gone. Yeah. And then this, Connor can tell us a little bit more in depth, but um, Austin was the other co-founder is working with somebody in the mortgage space and he wanted just to be a big influencer and then it led to some other deals, but he just wanted to create organic content. And now he has this audience where like, if you mention the name in that industry, like, oh yeah, I know him and he's not running any ads. So I think it's just a transition from figuring out like, we got to be owning that audience instead of renting it. And you can't be consistent with paid ads. And this, this was, I think it was a turning point. Well, and, and that's, I mean, that was, my first question for you guys, because if you have I mean, video, uh, video is everything now. I think Devin, you were reading some stats and all that stuff and it, it's pretty crazy. But if so working with a company though, um, how does that with remote employees, do you think that it's because then they have face time? I mean, I've been in zoom calls for the last two years where a lot of people don't even turn on their cameras anymore. You know? So it's like, how, how can, how do you use this to start building engagement and culture with the remote workforce and neither of you can take that one. Yeah. I, I yeah, I'll speak to that a little bit. Cause I, I, I found myself sending videos to our team and we've got, you know, a global team remote across multiple time zones, different shifts. And so uh, when I record a video, I, I, I see this like interesting reaction from people where they feel like, it's almost like they feel like they have a relationship with me that's extremely personal, even though we might have only had one or two conversations ever. But the videos, for some reason, I'll get DMs and we'll like they'll just like spill their heart out to me. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. I, I'm 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 really like, uh, you know, just I'm such a believer in the power of video to take things that that maybe when we're the creators feel like we're like standing on a podium and like yelling a message to the public world, but to the viewer, it feels so much more intimate. Mm -hmm. It feels much more one-on-one. And I think that really is the power of video, both, you know, just private DM kind of video, but also that kind of social media um, presence. Can you believe it? That's a wrap. We could have added so much more. We could have had like a three hour uh, clip here, but you know what? We've got to tease a little bit. We've got some good guests still coming up this season. February is going to be rocking. Uh, we did add a few uh, outtakes of the outtakes, by the way, after the closing music. So if you want to check out just a little bit more, you'll hear Karen's worst courtesy laugh maybe in the history of uh, radio or podcasting. And also my homage to Welcome Back, Carter. But I uh, hope you guys are enjoying the show. Please subscribe. Please uh, write us a review or just reach out to us. Find the blog and podcast podcast episodes on hrhardwell.com and we are once again sponsored by dink.pro go to dink.pro for pickleball gear the best you can find they say this up. <laughs> welcome back welcome back welcome back well we tease them a lot because we got them on the spot 
Anybody recognize that? That's from Welcome Back Cotter. And just like You're supposed to be using the notes to introduce the person. That's what I did it for. This is what I get is breathing, this loud breathing. Well, because it's just not doing it like it should do it. It's making me download each of these and oh my God. So it wasn't downloaded to your computer? Oh, they are, but they go to the cloud. Hmm. Oh, the cloud. Yeah, the cloud. So they're sitting up there in the cloud and you have to download it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. It's okay. It's only... Uh, well, then pause the recording right now. Just if we pause the recording, we start a new episode. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I thought that there was a pause button. There's no pause button. There's a stop button. Well, that's dumb. Well, let's just let's stop it. No. Well, I don't know. Talk to you. Hey, we can uh, go as long as it goes and just have to cut out all the, the fat. It's probably safer. If this works, it's going to be a miracle. You know that, right? Oh, come on, man. Did you see my messages? Your messages? In the chat function. Oh, you're using the chat function? Hold on, let's see. Where's the chat function? In the, in the right-hand corner. Okay. Told you I loved you and smile. I don't see anything. Even when you're unlovable, I love you. I'm not unlovable. Times. You're unlovable. I'm always lovable. <laughs> Why can't I see the chat? Mm-hmm. Who did you send it to? I don't know. <laughs> Shit. Somebody else is getting my kudos. Okay. I oh, jeez. Her audio is downloaded. Now we're waiting for our audio to download. This wonderful world of technology we live in blows. You know what? I ought to get this on because uh, we might have to put this in anyway. You ready, hon? Mm-hmm. Is it downloading? <laughs> yeah, they're being downloaded from the cloud. Do, 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 do. Well, this one's going a little faster. Anyway. You know, we're going to have to record this in sprints because I have a call in. Did you say sprints? Yeah, 35 you, minutes. You're using like, uh, what are those... Uh, Sigma, Six Sigma no, language. Sp sprints are like what you do in, in web or in web and app development. I think they're also part of project management when you do these things. Mm, they whatever. Call something. I know. Just, ooh, look at me and my big words. <laughs> sprint. It's five letters. S-P-R-I-N-T, six. Six letters. Okay, you must have talked a lot on this one part because everything else downloaded real quickly. Oh. Uh, why doesn't it all come together? Well, coming together is hard to do, hon. You know that. <laughs> You're disgusting. <laughs> why would you? Your mind is always... <laughs>
Are we gonna are we gonna cut that? <laughs> no, I think you should take that as an outtake. <laughs> <laughs>